Today's podcast, as promised, is an address to my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Haywood. The teacher who kicked me out of her classroom. Mrs. Haywood. You won't want to remember me, but because of the intensity of our interaction, you've probably not ever been able to forget me, even after 34 years. Traumas are like that. They are near impossible to forget. It is possible, however, to find purpose in them, Considering the role you played in the unforgettable memories of my childhood, I insist that you receive the proper acknowledgement. Recently, I wrote a letter to my fifth grade teacher, Ms. Homer, discussing her impact on my life. To use a Harry Potter metaphor, she may have been the Miss McGonagall of my elementary school experience. And if she was the Miss McGonagall, you were the Professor Snape. You get the honor of this podcasted address because of the role you played as my fourth grade homeroom teacher. But our first encounter, if you remember, happened actually in third grade English class. And in that one class, we had already established a friction between us. So, I'm actually... Not quite sure what compelled you to make me your homeroom student in the fourth grade after our distasteful interaction in third grade. Surely it wasn't because we enjoyed one another's presence. Maybe you actually felt that my gift for disrespect would benefit from more of your influence. Maybe you were actually just looking to expand the horizons of your teaching capacity. Or maybe it was just simply that Mine was one of the 30 names that were arbitrarily assigned to you, you having no say in the matter. But whatever the reason, you accepted me as your homeroom student for my fourth grade year and everything that came along with it. One thing you may or may not have known about the fourth grade version of me was that, unlike the previous year, I was no longer medicated for attention deficit disorder. Yep. The defiant little disaster that walked into your classroom, he was now medication-free. If you did know that I was no longer taking Ritalin, I do hope that you were informed as to the why. If not, grant me a moment here to explain. With any new-to-the-market medication, time is required to adequately understand its collective and especially its individual pharmacokinetics, which means the way a drug moves through the body, including the amount of time it's therapeutic to the individual and the amount of time it takes for the individual's system to wash it out. If you remember, 
our interaction occurred in the mid 80s. Stimulant use to treat ADD at that time was new, especially its use in children. Its extent of social benefit, as well as the complications of its chemistry, were not wholly understood by the many general practitioners who had quickly placed it into their toolkit. Likely, these practitioners had done so because they welcomed Ritalin as a much needed answer. An answer to the pleas of many desperate parents who were advocating for their loved, though deviantly energized, children. Unlike today, where we have the resources of the internet, back then, there wasn't the avenues to widely communicate the side effects of this particular ADD therapy to the individual and to their families. A big part of the difficulty was trying to convey the true intensity of Ritalin's ugliest aspect, the dopamine crash. For a parent who's newly hopeful of a treatment for their child, it's difficult for them to accept the intensity of a negative side effect when they see Ritalin as something heaven sent. The characteristic quick onset of Ritalin's effectiveness, which meant you could maybe see a major improvement of your child's behavior on just the first dose. This rapid effectiveness had the capacity to blind a parent with gratitude for such a profound cure for their child. So much so that a parent could actually spend quite some time in denial of the drastic personality changes that sometimes gripped a child. You see, after being on it for some time, a child can develop a tolerance towards Ritalin, causing them to experience a consistent loss of therapeutic effectiveness. This can become evident in each individual dose having a shorter and shorter working time, sometimes leaving the child stripped of dopamine as the day progresses. This could be seen as severe irritability lack of motivation, and defiance, especially in the late afternoon. As an example, during my third grade year, Ritalin had been fairly effective throughout the school day. Now, of course, I was still a brat, but less of one. Yet, come 4 p.m. each day, my body and brain were depleted of the effective meds and nutrients. This pharmacological depletion was not something readily apparent to myself, my parents, or even the doctor of general medicine who was treating me. And this wasn't because the doctor wasn't competent or that my parents weren't attentive. I was simply taking a new-to-market medication of which not a lot was known about. And it wasn't just that, but the fact is, trying to tell if a psychoactive medicine is working one moment and not working the next is not simple for anyone, let alone a nine-year-old. It's not as simple as asking your kid, hey, buddy. Does your tummy hurt again? It's actually a very work-intensive process. And that brings up an important point to make as an aside here. These medications take time and patience to refine for each individual. This is not something my parents fully understood. And I'm not saying these medications should be avoided. In fact, I actually still use these medications today because they're profoundly helpful with my condition. But it's important for those who choose to take them to understand that optimizing their desired effect requires work, constant work, the work of self-evaluation, the work of assessing outcomes, 
and the work of exercising courage in trying changes in treatment if your current treatment isn't working. Among these changes include a willingness to go through the trial and error of trying different dosages of the medicine you're currently on, or even different medications. Courageous change also includes a willingness to alter one's own behavioral strategy, or even one's own way of life. Now, during third grade, I didn't have the benefit of this outlook. Some vivid memories of that third grade year were examples of the previous mentioned dopamine crash and a lack of awareness of how my body was dealing with medication. In these several memories, which each of them happened right after school, in each case, I'd been belligerent either to my mom or to one of my siblings. And it was for that behavior that I'd been placed in my room. While in my room, I recall several times being overcome with hate, anger, despondency. In these cases, the rage was so extreme that I would physically erupt, meaning that I would start pushing over the furniture. I would kick the bedroom door repeatedly. I would throw solid objects at the wall. In addition to this, I would scream over and over. I wish I was dead. I want to kill myself. Mind you, I'm nine years old. My poor mother. I can only imagine, first, the horror she felt hearing those words come out of her son's mouth. But second, especially after I'd done this a couple of times, her embarrassment because my mom was a piano teacher and she taught in our home. Each afternoon, in half-hour increments, piano students would show up at our house to receive their weekly lesson on our family piano. That family piano sat about 30 feet away from my emotional eruptions. Oftentimes, parents of the students would accompany their kids. There was a parent present for at least one of my meltdowns. These afternoon emotional breakdowns were frequent enough that my parents decided to take me off of Ritalin in the summer of 1988. And this is the version of me that walked into your fourth grade class, Mrs. Haywood, August 1988. It's a sweet little angel. In truth, nearly all the memories I have interacting with you are limited to facial expressions. From what I recall, you rarely reprimanded me openly in class. Other than the situationally necessarily like Kurt's statement of go sit in the hall, which eventually was just shortened to go and you'd point your finger out towards the hall. You actually favored the more subtle tactic of staring directly at me for an uncomfortable amount of time. You had this incredibly effective set of angry eyes and those eyes you highlighted with an uncanny amount of blinking. It was especially effective when you unleashed those blinking eyes in close proximity. Like that time in class where I leaned over to my friends and started to say something like, hey guys, wouldn't it be hilarious if, at which point I go silent because I'd noticed my friends looking over my shoulder. Their eyes had convinced me to hold my tongue. I slowly began to turn my head and whoa, I nearly fell backwards out of my chair. 
you, through some remarkable stealth, had positioned your face crazy close to mine. I was actually surprised our noses didn't touch. And at that distance, I remember at their rate of operation, your battering eyelashes were actually audible. Mr. Bagley. Now, anytime a 10-year-old boy is addressed as Mr., followed by only his last name, what follows? Rarely enviable. But you'd proceed. Mr. Bagley, I would like to speak with you out in the hall. You and I would then slowly walk to the spot, that same spot that you and I would visit on probably at least a weekly basis. And by visit, I mean you scold and I frantically try to avoid eye contact with you. Looking back, I appreciate your method. In fact, I've actually used it on my own kids in church meetings, minus the eyelash battering, because I don't have that kind of coordination. But the embarrassment of walking out of a room full of people is punishment enough for a child. It also buys the, the disappointed person a moment to compose themselves, a helpful benefit when you're, when you're aggravated. And once you get away from all those people, you have the benefit of fewer witnesses. Those hall visits of ours were generally effective for at least a few days until that one afternoon. That fateful day, my antics graduated beyond the measures of a hallway visit. It was just after lunch and a long recess. As always, you were reading the class a novel to settle us down. And for some reason, on this particular day, I found myself especially irritated by the storyline. Naturally then, I considered it sensible that I should make my opinion known. And I proceeded to do so in a manner consistent with my maturity. Now, it wasn't simply the, the rumbling noise that was problematic, but it was, it was probably more the consistency and the longevity of the reverberation. Now, this was something I developed coordination for. This simulated flatulation earned me something unprecedented. No invitation to the hallway this time. In fact, not a word was spoken. You simply grasped me by the arm and then escorted me down to the administrative office, where I reverently sat in a chair for some time while you engaged with Principal Woods behind a closed door. When you came out, you bolted right past me without even a look, headed back towards the classroom. You gave no indication that I should follow you. So I sat there for like a minute or two. I wasn't quite sure what to do. Then from inside his office, Principal Woods said, Todd, come in here. Which I did. And closed the door behind you. He actually already had the phone in his hand and was calling my mom. Mrs. Bagley. I have Todd here in my office. He has pestered Mrs. Haywood beyond reasonable consideration. In fact, she just told me that she refuses to let him back into her classroom. Mrs. Bagley, what do you think we should do with Todd? I could hear my mom making a statement on the other end of the line. 
And then eventually Mr. Woods responded, yeah, I'm at a loss myself, but whatever the case, he cannot go back into her classroom. Their conversation continued for several more minutes. And when it ended, Principal Woods hung up the phone, sighed heavily. All right, Todd. There, there's a desk just outside, across the hall. This was a solitary desk that students would use when taking individual tests. Mostly the gifted kids used it. Mr. Woods continued. For the time being, that desk, that's your assigned seat. All day, every day, until we can come up with some other arrangement. Very important. Do not go back to the classroom to gather your things. Mrs. Haywood is going to have them brought to you. That day, and for many days afterwards, I sat at that desk, doing my work assignments and daydreaming. The first week was actually pretty interesting. Just 20 feet away from the teacher's lounge, my position put me in contact with teachers I'd known from previous years. Because the desk was mostly used for the gifted kids, their academic advancements, some of the teachers actually mistook me for a student who was probably worthy of praise. One of my favorite prior teachers was my third grade home teacher, Mr. Anderson. Hey there, Todd. Good to see you, man. What have you been up to? Hey, Mr. A. Uh, nothing much. Well, actually, I made farting noises in class, so they put me here for a while. It's not so bad. I finished my work pretty quickly. So most days I just sit here and, and draw most of the time. Mr. Anderson was like, oh, that's interesting. Well, I like that leprechaun you've drawn there. That's pretty good. Well, you know, I got to get back to class. See you later, Todd. Weeks went by sitting there, greeting teachers, drawing pictures, Practicing my cursive using curse words. My memory is actually a bit foggy on the actual time in isolation. I want to say months. There are memories watching kids participate in school and the activities from that spot. But I also remember participating in fourth grade activities later that year. So whether it was weeks, months, something in between, the point is, is that the solitary desk became a stepping stone in my childhood. Actually, as an aside here, in talking about the time frame, my mom remembers my time at the desk being nearly the entire year. That may be true. I'm basing my memory off of visual cues from the vantage point of the desk. The most prominent of those memories being a decorated wall close to the desk that stated, March, in like a lion, out like a lamb. And because that has been the most firm time indicator in my memory, I felt it safe to assume I was at the solitary desk at least by February of the school year. However, I actually do remember watching kids play on snow mounds that the snow plows would plow together to clear the school parking lot. But in reality, in Salt Lake City, those type of snow mounds puts a timeline anywhere between October and April, which isn't helpful. But most problematic. With my own timeline, 
is the day I was removed from class. I actually remember it being very hot. We'd just come in from recess and I was, <laughs> I was pretty sweaty. And I only remember this because Mrs. Haywood had a hard time grasping my arm from the sweat that was on it. The other complication that clouds my own memory is that at some point, the expulsion was actually lifted from my core classes, which meant that from that day on, I was only in solitary during homeroom time, which meant I was with my classmates during math, history, and science, so that I vividly remember classes with Mr. Oscarson, Mrs. Blaine, Mr. Andreasen, and I actually still even had to spend a part of each day with Mrs. Haywood. She was my English teacher and evidently wasn't allowed to expel me from that class long-term. Regardless of the true length of time, my experience at the desk made me realize I had to change. It was fourth grade when I started taking interest in girls. That discovery, coupled with the shame of the desk, triggered within me a unique desire to, to be better, or at least fake being better so that I might be worthy of a girl's attention in my grade. And it wasn't just me who was inspired by the desk. The desk motivated Principal Woods and my parents to change my environment. It caused them to look for other educational and social methods to better meet my needs. So, these were all positive outcomes that happened to me as a result of the decision to isolate me. However, back to you, Mrs. Haywood. As far as I'm aware, you gained no upside to our interaction, which is sad because you were a good teacher. You voluntarily placed yourself in a stressful situation for the good of children, a sacrifice not all today's teachers are willing to make. You may have at some point felt like an imperfect teacher maybe wondering why you were the common factor for the worst of my behaviors. Yet, had it not been for your earnest demeanor, your stern expectations of me, the extent of my own malady may have remained hidden to me for many years afterwards. What you may have considered at some point your own weaknesses in teaching may have been the very social irritants I actually needed to ignite transformation within me. Now, these many years later, I actually work with kids in stress-filled situations. I'm a pediatric dentist, so I can fully appreciate the energy it takes to maximize a child's growth while trying to minimize their trauma in difficult situations. And it's quite often that I'm visited by children in anguish, kids who are hoping for someone to deliver them from their pain. But of these cases, it is not uncommon for a child to express preference for their toothache to the actual dental treatment. Their anxiety of the treatment exceeds their pain. Likewise, parents suffer because they're aware of what trauma awaits their child in the dental experience. And as the dentist, I too dread those moments. No one involved in rodeo-style tooth extraction ever escapes the experience without feeling emotionally poisoned. Yet professionally, I know what is needed to deliver the child from the pain. But more importantly, to deliver the child from greater potential harm. 
In those cases, injections and extractions on a resistant child are far preferable to a much darker outcome. These situations require a physician who is willing to experience personal distress. A distress that results from being the person that willingly administers the uncomfortable treatment upon that ailing child. Modern-day medicine and psychology are founded on the necessity for humans to experience hurt in order to heal. However, imparting a helpful hurt on a child who can't comprehend the heal requires a person of great courage and conviction. It has often crossed my mind that the predicament of a pediatric dentist is not unlike your dilemma 35 years ago. I see it like this. I was a 10-year-old boy with an emotional disorder, and I needed someone willing to administer an uncomfortable treatment upon me. Someone willing to be despised. Someone willing to suffer herself. Also that I might have a chance to get better. I needed a teacher willing to sacrifice her own well-being and when willing to do so, not just in the absence of my thankful recognition, but by being openly villainized by me, the very boy for whom she suffered. And you did. I now realize that you loved me, but with a love uncommon and undervalued. This type of love is often mistaken. For mistreatment. I made that mistake, but I now understand. The punishment you inflicted enabled my potential. As the sacrificer, you empowered the sacrifice. Thank you, Mrs. Haywood, for having the courage to empower the potential within me. To that end, I hope that you are never able to forget me, the boy you sent to the solitary desk. Signed, with humility, TB, Todd Bagley, The Bruised. Considering the last two podcasts, I'm interested in your take on these two teachers of my childhood. In contrast to the address given Miss Homer in the previous podcast, does the appreciation for Mrs. Haywood in this podcast seem disingenuous? I ask because there aren't any feel-good moments between Mrs. Haywood and myself, or nothing the reader might find emotionally appealing. But that's actually most of the point. Because we struggle to allow ourselves to make heroes of those who have caused us pain. That then, in my mind, begs the question, must a hero, by definition, constitutionally bring about happiness and joy? Or can a hero's character be manifest in a moment like, say, the atonement, one in which a guiding hero courageously inflicts pain or discomfort 
upon their protagonist? And if so, as is the case in this tale of two teachers of mine, why is it so easy to comprehend the hero when the offering is appeasing and almost impossible to accept when what the hero offers is anguish? For this reason, the comparison of Mrs. Haywood to Professor Snape was deliberate. Professor Snape is a complex performer of subversion. And what I mean by that is he plays two roles. One, a blatant antagonist who's filled with disdain for almost everything the protagonist favors. The other, a veiled conspirator. One who, and here's an apt word considering the relationship between the two, suffers. One who suffers upon the protagonist necessary challenges to prepare the hero for that which he is pridefully unaware of. In my opinion, Severus Snape, he is J.K. Rowling's greatest masterpiece. How often do we have someone like that in our lives? Someone who challenges our capabilities to the point where it feels Maybe their intent is to harm one who suffers upon us. Those who, by their willingness to appear the villain, are only then able to push us to achieve our greatest potential. Has there been a villain in your life who, through time and wisdom, you came to eventually understand that person was actually playing the role of the subverted hero? Are the Mrs. Haywoods of our lives just as important, if not more so, than our Miss Homers? Can God play such a role in our lives? Join the Facebook page of The Bruised to offer your opinion.